Welcome back, friends. You are listening to Mile 52 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. It is great to have you back with us. We are going to recap last weekend's Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta with our guest this week, Kim Maloney, formerly Kim Ruck, local runner who starred at Clemson and with the Greenville Track Club Elite, and she had a great performance this past weekend in Atlanta. Before we bring in Kim, let's review the results and what a day it was in Georgia. The course certainly starred, as we mentioned last week, crazy up and down elevation changes that certainly played a role in our results. It was the men on the course first, and the early moves were made by Luke Pesquedra, fourth place finisher in 2016, CJ Albertson, who was just second at CIM last fall, then Brian Schrader. Schrader led through half in 64-54 before getting swallowed up by the chase pack. 2016 trials champ and Olympic bronze medalist Galen Rupp took control at mile 16, making several small surges before breaking free from the lead group at 20 miles. At that point, local favorite Matt McDonald of the Atlanta Track Club stood in third with the home crowd urging him on. But in the final miles, Jacob Riley of the Boulder Track Club came from well back, closing hard to move into second with 43-year-old Abdi Abdi Rahman making another trip to the Olympics by finishing third. The finishing times in an exceptionally fast race were Rupp in 209.20, Riley 210.02, and Abdi 210.03. They led six men under the Olympic standard of 211.30 on this particularly difficult course. The way Rupp looked post-injury is one of the great stories here. He was smooth and in command, looking like he was ready to break free with 10 miles to go before settling back in. His 209.20, under these conditions, after Achilles surgery and a DNF last fall in Chicago, may be among the most impressive races of his career, certainly stacking up well even with 206, 207 times he's run on flatter courses in Prague and Chicago. The Riley story's fantastic. After running well at Stanford University, then fighting through persistent injury, breaking through at Chicago last fall with a 210, at the time we noted his performance, but left him off our list of favorites last week, even though he came in with one of the best times. He seemed unproven with really only one great race to his name as a marathoner. But the way he finished this week, he certainly earned his way onto the team as the only unsponsored athlete who will be representing us in Tokyo. And for Abdi, it's his fifth games at 43 years old, the Masters Division champion in Atlanta, running a 210. What a performance. Our picks sure to go wrong certainly did just that. We never disappoint. I had Galen winning, and we got that. Benji went with Leonard Career, who finished just outside of qualifying in fourth place. The sleepers weren't bad in both races. We had a dark horse here, Martin Ayer, who actually finished sixth in 2.11.29 while having to stop to take a bathroom break. So hats off to Martin in only his second marathon 
on his performance. Later, the women hit the streets of Running City, USA, and a much more tactical race unfolded. A large lead pack featuring the sport's biggest names stuck together for nearly 20 miles. But one by one, the titans of women's marathoning fell off the pace. First, Jordan Hesse, shortly after halfway. Then later, favorites Emily Sisson, Molly Huddle, and Sarah Hall. Eventual champion Alephine Tulliamuk and runner-up Molly Seidel led a breakaway storming uphill on the final loop. And Sally Kipiego held off hard-charging Des Linden for the final spot. Again, these were results that we didn't see coming. We'll admit when we're wrong. But again, our dark horses were pretty solid. I had Molly Seidel, the runner-up, out of nowhere in her marathon debut. And Laura Thweet, who finished fifth as two runners to watch that not a lot of people were talking about. But we talked about a lot of women who fell short this week. One thing to watch going forward is how these results will impact the women's 10,000 on the track. We had serious medal contenders who won't even make our marathon team, like Emily Sisson, Emma Bates, Jordan Hesse, Kellen Taylor, Molly Huddle. And I think you could see three of those women potentially qualify in the 10,000. So I'm going to go ahead and double down on bad predictions and go Sisson, Huddle, Taylor for the 10,000 later this year on the track in Eugene to advance to Tokyo. Now for more insights from inside the ropes in Atlanta, let's bring in Kim Maloney to share her experience, but also to take a step back and tell us how, from humble beginnings as a soccer player, she became an Olympic marathon trials qualifier. Here's the interview I recorded with Kim earlier this week. Kim, welcome to Seconds Flat. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am fantastic. It is so good to have you joining us here right after your finish at the Olympic Marathon Trials in two hours, 44 minutes, and four seconds. Kim was 107th of 390 women's finishers. Could you tell us just a little about the excitement of that day? It was um, off the charts, I would have to say that, and especially when you have a noon race and you have the entire morning to get excited or nervous or every emotion in between, Um, and the excitement was probably building up a lot starting on Thursday when the athletes got there. Um, Atlanta Track Club offered all qualifying athletes uh, rooms to stay in from Thursday to Sunday. And so the excitement started on Thursday and it was definitely at high the whole, the whole time leading up into the trials. And yeah, there's so much anticipation, so much, um, nervousness in a good way. And I could feel it, you know, myself, but also with everybody I talked to, especially seeing the, um, more like Olympic hopefuls, and it, it just really became kind of surreal, you know, until you're racing and then it becomes really real. But talking to everybody who had different goals and different expectations for the race, it just became kind of a synergy as well of, you know, that we're there and that this is, this is just a race, but it's also not just a race. 
Yeah, what did it mean to you to be there? Not sure exactly. It, it meant so much. Um, I wouldn't have been there without the Raleigh Distance Project and without a lot of the people that I train with every day. And it just really, to me, meant gosh, just going after something, I guess, and going after something that I never would have gone after had I not been just really influenced by the community and the people around me and just having a ton of people who really believe in me. So uh, for me, it just meant kind of like facing your fears and really surrounding yourself with a good group of people and then just going after it and not being afraid to fail, but also believing in yourself that you can do it on, on a good day. You mentioned the noon start. What did that morning look like and how did that change your typical morning routine? And did you practice the noon start in your buildup? You know, I didn't. Um, and I didn't practice it. And it was something that I would have a lot of people asking me, what is your race plan? What is your fueling plan? What is your morning routine? And my response was, I, I haven't really changed anything or planned to. I was also just really looking forward to being able to get a full night's sleep. And so my, th my thought was, you know, instead of waking up at 4 a.m. to get ready for a 7 a.m. race, I can wake up at 8 a.m. to get ready for a noon race. And so kind of doing the same thing, but just just doing it a little bit later. And, mm -hmm. and then that, I mean, is, is what I did. And so and Atlanta Track Club did a great job of offering meals and everything to people. So just kind of wander downstairs sort of like your continental breakfast and get that food and then go back up into your room and just hang out until, until it's race time. So describing that course as hilly seems like a bit of an understatement. What yeah. was that? What was that challenge like? It was good that I didn't get the course preview, I think. And a lot of people <laughs> told me that that was probably a good thing too. It was definitely rolling hills. I live in Chapel Hill now. And so it's something where I more or less run on the rolling hills often, but it's another thing when you're trying to race on rolling hills and, and it's more than rolling hills. Yeah. It's like rolling steep hills. Um, it was hard. It was, I, I feel like I had a very smart race where I went out really comfortable and tried to maintain a comfortable but uncomfortable pace for as long as I could because I knew that we had basically three laps with the third lap being a little bit of a extension and so my race plan was just to go out and see what the first lap was like and then kind of make a strategy for the second lap after that but um yeah it it was, and the winds didn't help at all. The 20 mile an hour winds were not nice to us. So that wasn't going to help us up any hills. As a spectator, the course was fantastic. <laughs> Being oh, able to, yes, right? absolutely. And, and what did you think of the environment that came with that? They, it, the spectating was incredible. The streets were lined with people the whole way. And that was very energizing, very uh, just invigorating when you don't want to go any further. And then you hit, a, you hit a spot of just like tons of people and you're like, I can't stop here. And that the course was, for that reason, great um, and really cool to see so many people coming out for a running event. 
being able to stay essentially in one place and see everyone six times on Peachtree and with the energy that was on the course, it made for one of the great sporting events, regardless of sport that I've ever attended. And it's fun to hear you say that that translated for you all as athletes as well. Absolutely. It, it was the most, I mean, for running 26 miles, I never felt alone. <laughs> yeah. How does that course compare to other places, past experiences, as far as the level of challenge? You know, I've only run two marathons, and so you have to respect the distance, too. And it's hard to compare. I have one race to compare it to, and that's Houston, which is pancake flat. And so mm -hmm. compared to that, this course was wildly more challenging. However, the spectators really just were infusing the air with energy, and that obviously helps a ton but as far as challenging courses, it, it, um, it's definitely up there, definitely up there with one of the more challenging courses. Cause you really don't know how to, you have to learn how to pace yourself up the hills and it also beats your legs up on the way down. I'm, my quads are more sore than anything in my body. Um, and I'm convinced that's because of the downhills, not the uphills. And the, <laughs> it, the last two or three miles were the hardest miles obviously of the race in general of any marathon. And I, I think it is a cruel joke for them to have done the last two or three miles, the course that they did. Um, it was going over bridges, going up and down. There was a pin, um, like an, a 180 turn. The winds were just directly in our face. Of course you didn't, you had no way to control that, but that part, um, that part probably tipped it over to just may have been the hardest race race that I've ever done. Um, you have like hard races that you're just kind of doing as tune ups or doing as workouts, but that if you include that last 5k, it was, it's probably up there in the top one or two. So a couple of things to unpack there, the course plus the conditions with the wind certainly played a role in who advanced from this in the top three men and women to go to the games in Tokyo this summer. We had a number of women who could be con considered medal contenders who won't even make the team. How much of an equalizer was the layout in Atlanta in seeing who actually finished in the top three? Just the type of race you had to run, the rhythm that you could or couldn't get into, the changing perception of effort, all those factors. I, I mean, by the top three that finished, you have to think that it was pretty impactful. I, I'm not exactly sure how the race unfolded from the front, but to run, to run a 227 on that course is, is, is moving. But I would like to think that you know, this course on, or this, this, the, the fitness that these women had on a different course would have been significantly faster, I guess. Um, I, I would like to think some of the new people like Molly Seidel, all she really had to do was feed off of the people in front of her. And really clearly she's, she is 
wildly fit and she never had to lead, never had to worry about, um, just being the front runner, no pressure too. It, it kind of, I know from experience in college where you're kind of running as the new person out there, it's, it's kind of fun and ignorance is bliss. But I imagine that the people who dropped out that were contenders at the start line, I think that it just got probably like shockingly harder than anticipated. Mm-hmm. And, um, sometimes you can deal with that and, and tune it into your race and just like focus, or you can let it take over and over 26 miles, it's easy to, to face those battles and and lose. Um, so I imagine that, I imagine that, you know, on a flat course, it may have been a different outcome. You just said you didn't get to see how it unfolded from the front of the pack and even watching the race there. Being at around, I think I was near 18, and that front group was still largely together at that point, you know, maybe a dozen women or so. And by the time I saw them again, it had frayed, and now we have this strung out and, and just a few ladies left. And my first thought was, I can't wait to get back and watch the recording of this and see what in the world happened to how this broke up, right? Because... There were, you mentioned Molly Seidel not having to lead and being able to tuck in, but there were other women with incredible track records who were in a similar position. And, and as you mentioned there, just that point where it became so incredibly difficult to probably the combination of into the wind and then coming back up Peachtree, that was a really long, gradual uphill and I don't, I'm not even sure how long, could you estimate how long you were kind of grinding back up peach tree on that loop that you had to do three times? No, it felt like we went out two miles and then came back three. And we, we sort of looped it back around. And I remember my coach being, telling me, you know, at mile 17 is when you need to be thinking about your race. Mile 17 to 19 and a half is net downhill, pretty significant. But at mile 19 is when the race starts. Mile 19, 19 and a half, which is where I've seen most women drop out or where I've heard that most people dropped out or that's where they lost their race was between 18 and 20. And I've heard that, you know, in general with the marathon, but I think this one is different because I don't think that these women would have had as good or bad of races um, if they would have respected that this race starts at mile 19 because it's uphill until mile 25. And knowing that that's the hardest part of the race anyways, but then we're reaching our highest elevation in between those distances. And then, you know, you put in the 180 turns and then you put in the bridges and the short shorter and steeper uphills. Um, and then the fact that there's, yeah, that people have frayed out and you can't hide behind anybody and you're kind of, you're probably working by yourself. It, it, that is where the race started. And I feel like that's where the race stopped for a lot of people. Yeah. That, that's part of the beauty though, of everyone competing on the same day on one course for three spots, right? Gosh. Yeah. And I hear some discussion of perhaps are we better served by 
perhaps it's a point system or it's finishing at majors or other ideas because of the upsets that came with this weekend. Any thoughts? You still a fan of let's all line up and race for this? I can go back and forth on it. Um, on one hand, it's who is most likely to represent USA the best. And so you can argue for a point system, argue for having people with a track record that's, that is deep and um, reliable, consistent. But, but then again, I think that just the nature of the sport is that it's anybody's race any day. And so you can, you can draw on that consistency, but then you can also respect the fact that, you know, these people showed up on the day they were supposed to, and that in itself can speak volumes because when the pressure's on, they don't buckle, they don't, they can grind it out. And so kind of in this case, I'm, I'm happy to see the three women, um, and I've been, I've been following the women more than men, but like the three women that won our race go and they deserve it. And it wouldn't be, an, we wouldn't need an Olympic trials if it was somebody who was based on points or had this deep resume. Um, th there would be no need. We would know who was going at the start line. Yeah, it certainly produces, if you want to call it reality television, at its purest form, just the raw human emotion of both those who, as you said, locked in that day and ran their best race and the joy you get to see. And, and then also the, the difficulty that comes with maybe not living up to the hope of, of making it. That to me is, is such pure sport and it, it is part of what made that event so amazing. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking that they there's usually an they, I feel like the IAAF and USDF have done sort of an in between where you have the trials you see it in track two where there's a standard you have to hit in order to make it but they made Atlanta a gold course so right. top three go and maybe it won't be like that in four years but I, I thought that was exciting and and. I don't know if leveling the playing field is the right word, but it just gave, it gave everybody more reason to dig deep. So for the listeners who are unaware, the Atlanta trials were a gold label race, which meant regardless of time run, and if that met an Olympic standard, the top finishers were going to make the team. So as you said, that added to the excitement of the day. Now, you referenced earlier your qualifying at Houston. Let's mm -hmm. rewind a little bit to that race. 2.43 at Houston in January. First thing I want to know is when during that race did you know you were going to hit the qualifying mark? Gosh. Um, also, as a, this, that was my first marathon. Mm -hmm. So the answer is, I want to say like mile 13, Oh, but nice. then I, I was also um, respecting the fact that everybody told me between miles 20 and mile 23 is when the race starts, but also you're most likely to uh, hit the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just remember thinking at mile 13, I can go 13 more miles at this pace. And, but I, I, I wouldn't say in that moment, I knew I had it. I, 
I knew I had it at mile 22 when I had a little over four miles to go. And I felt I, I, fresh is not the right word, but I felt good enough to pick it up a pr- pretty significantly. And for anybody who knows me, I'm not somebody who has this kick at the end or can even shift gears easily. And so when I knew, when I knew I could, I could drop the pace and I felt confident enough to do that. I, that's when I knew all I had to do was finish and I can also go a little faster and, and get a little bit of a faster time. Cause all I was going for was two forty four fifty nine. Right. I like that answer though, that you felt at 13. I kind of wanted you to say from the gun, you were, you knew you were going to do it. Uh, but right. You're right. You know that you feel it's, it can be accomplished, but there's still that little bit of healthy fear of, I got to get to the point where this is real. Once you get there and you finish, what were the emotions knowing you're going to Atlanta? Gosh, um, there was just a flood of emotions. There's pictures of me going down the final stretch and I'm like smiling and waving at people. And, And I'm not somebody who gets overly emotional after races, like high or low, but that one was, gosh, just, just really special. It really represented a lot in the sense that I decided to go for this race because of the friends that I've made in Chapel Hill and Raleigh who just kind of approached me after I ran a half marathon and just said, you, you should, you should try it. Just, just go for it. And I was like, that's dumb. But as a cascade of events, I, I wouldn't say I got suckered into doing the marathon, but I got convinced that it's, that it was worth trying. And I think that, and I started training for it at the like middle of end of November. So even that buildup was expedited and then doing that entire buildup and then finishing at the goal that I had set, it, it just was the culmination of like everything that I hoped would go right went right. And that's rare in running where you can envision yourself succeeding or surpassing your goals and then it actually happening how you envision it. And I think that at the end of it, it just was kind of stepping into that dream that I had hoped for myself and I was stepping into it in, in a reality. And it was, it was an awesome feeling to go back and see my coach and some of my teammates that were there, talk to my husband and everybody like saying, we told you, you could do it. And, and then meeting reality of like, okay, and I did it. It was really cool. Eloquently articulated, Kim. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that there and go to a next one because we can't put that any better. You mentioned your team, the Raleigh Distance Project. Can you describe a little bit of what that's been like running with those women? Gosh, I feel like they're a big reason why I'm still running. And the they're incredible. They are a self-made, I would say semi-elite, elite running team. All of us have some job or school program outside of running. So running is wildly important to us, but also we're all pursuing 
careers in some way, shape, or form. And it is so cool to be a part of a group that that respects that, that respects that you have a lot of things going on and running is your love, but it can't be your everything. And also that respect the community and, and know the importance of surrounding yourself with good people and training partners, the importance of choosing your sponsors wisely and, and investing back into them. And I think that they do such a great job of operating on all cylinders and everybody more or less sharing the load. And, and we recently expanded from six to 10 women and it's so cool to see how everybody just lifts each other up and how everybody's running better because of each other. And I think we can all look at each other and totally give credit to one another and our coach and the people who back us because it just takes the sport and, and gives it back to the people who kind of hold the sport up because it's not just like elite athletes can't be in the sport alone. It takes people in the community and runners of all levels to buy into it too. And to really just love it and give you a reason to keep doing it. Yeah, that's fantastic. We've talked to a number of athletes who ran this past weekend and that life and running balance that you mentioned has been central to a lot of those discussions, regardless, as you said, if it is the semi-elite athlete, someone who has a full-time career or someone who is sponsored and all they have to do is run, finding that way to balance all their interests and passions and a healthy pursuit of excellence seems to be a really key ingredient for so many of these great runners. So it's really cool to hear what all you ladies in Raleigh are doing there. You had just six weeks between these two marathons. Can you share some key pieces of what that training block looked like? <laughs> it included a trip to Australia. As you would expect. As, as you would expect, um, <laughs> which isn't ideal, but it was a work conference that was already pre-planned, and so it happened. But after, after Houston, I took you know, a few days of no running. My legs felt completely trashed. And then I slowly did just some aqua jogging in the pool and some regular swimming and tried to do just some, some light strength training to keep up just my muscular strength. And then slowly started to sprinkle in runs starting at like three, five, and then they amped up pretty quickly. Um, and then I think it was about maybe a week and a half after I qualified, I, I left for Australia, which is, gosh, a 25 to 30-hour trip uh, across the world. And I, I, at that point, it, I'm just the person who, if you can't do anything about it, then you just have to move on. And so the, I just kept thinking, I have to get on this plane and do all these things of traveling across the world. And so it's not an option. And I'm, I'm going to have to get through this. And it, it was fine. I thankfully had a whole entire row on my 15 hour flight to myself. And then 
in Australia, the weather was in the 80 to 90 degrees, upwards of touching 100. And so I got some really good heat training in, but I still got out there and did more of just Bartlett training on a really awesome bike path that they had. And so that is what I did two or three weeks after Houston and um, in between conference stuff. And then, you know, came back to the States and I had about, I I think I had one 16 mile run, one 21 mile run. And then it was time to taper. I, I felt like that I, I recovered, uh, on paper, I recovered by taking some days off and pool running, went to Australia, got a bulk of the training in of like, of amping back up my mileage. And then I got back to Chapel Hill and had probably a week. It felt like a week of workouts, which included basically two workouts. And then the next week was taper. It, it went, it flew by and you know, it's, it's better to be undertrained than overtrained is kind of what I told myself. So, and I, I didn't have any hiccups in even leading up to Houston and into Atlanta. I never battled any injuries or any sicknesses, which I think I, I mean, even getting sick, I think was, I was super fortunate to not come down with anything. And so I took those as wins and kind of put them in my mind when I needed to think about the training that I've done or the lack of training that I, that I've done and just, you know, go in with as much positivity as I can because I did the best with what I had. Yeah. I'd probably rather be 5% under trained than 1% over. Especially on that course. Right. Yeah. Push yourself over the edge. So it seems it was largely about sharpening some things, but, but being fresh and mentally as much as physically ready to go for another one on a short turnaround. Yeah. I kind of looked back at Houston and it did not take as much out of me as we anticipated. And so I just kind of looked back and tried to think of it more as a hard, you know, time trial kind of thing that you might do building up to something else instead of, instead of thinking about it as a, you know, as a, um, a detriment to the larger picture of me building up to the trials. Good point. Where did you go in Australia? I went to Brisbane. It's on the um, East coast. How was the trip? It was, it was great. We, uh, my husband ended up coming out halfway through my conference. We got to hold koala bears. We got to hang out with kangaroos it was, it was very hot. Um, it was also turning from their summer into their monsoon season. So we did hit a lot of rain, but man, um, it was, it was really, really cool. It was really cool. The kangaroos were by far my favorite. Very cool. That rain was much needed for them after <laughs> what they've been through. So yes, yes, it, it very much was. And they got a lot of it. So <laughs> I was hoping there that you would say maybe Sydney or Melbourne because both have hosted Summer Olympic Games. There could have been a fun connection there for you. But um, Brisbane sounds like a cool place as well. Yeah, and I had I had a friend running in the Olympic trials for Australia. Oh, wonderful! In Melbourne, and you know I did the the flight check to see how much does it cost to get across the country. And I was, and I ended up not going, yeah. but it would have been cool to be in one of those cities. Cause I totally would have taken advantage of all of the running history that they have. 
Speaking of running history, your favorite running memories from here in upstate South Carolina? Man, there's, there's so many. And I feel like, gosh, some of my favorite running memories are just on the Swamp Rabbit Trail, doing so many repeats and having different friends just hop in and hop out. And just kind of a, it's such a place to see see people that you know, see people like meet people that you don't know, like, and, and just, it's, I don't know if I would say it's fun, but it just has so many memories of countless miles, countless runs in the dark, before work, after work, meeting friends, just do, just going out and running up and then turning around. But a lot of my favorite memories are from races too, like the Reedy River and, uh, the downtown, the Greenville downtown 5k. And then I've done Ville to Ville, which is from Asheville to Greenville. And I'm doing that again this year. Oh, super. They have a a big party basically, um, right near, I don't know what it's called. I guess it's the commons now, but just, just the more of like the fun afterward. I really loved the long runs where nobody wants to really be there. We have to kind of, and then some people get coerced into going, but then it it's the bribe is brunch afterward. And so everybody makes time for that. And it's sort of the whole social aspect. I'm, I don't know if it's, if the word is notorious is the right thing, but I'm, I'm notorious for being um, the one who runs in order to, actually like hang out with friends and it's more of a social event than than a serious training uh segment or something like that and so that's usually what I would try to surround it with but gosh I mean it's just I feel like I've run every single road in Greenville downtown from I mean beyond the zoo up to Traveler's Rest and farther I have some friends running that Ville to Ville relay this year. So I'm going to make sure they look out for the ringer from <laughs> Chapel Hill coming down. Uh, what, what's the place you miss running here the most? Is it Swamp Rabbit Trail? Place I miss the most. Um, it, I, I, part of me thinks that the Swamp Rabbit is the really the main running place in Greenville. I do miss tuxedo a lot. That's not in Greenville, but it's a beautiful loop around where if you need soft surface, it's great. And then they have the flat rock bakery that you can stop by. I know it well. (laughs) That's, that's probably one of the more serene places where I feel like it's just um, more nature. There's more, just I feel more connected to the people I'm running with and the nature that's there when I'm at Tuxedo, but but in Greenville, I, it's probably closer toward Furman area that that I really love and running around Furman and some of those trails back there. Yeah, we had Frank Lara on recently. He's gearing up for the uh, U.S. 15K champs this weekend in Jacksonville, and he also mentioned Tuxedo as his place that he misses now that he's out in Boulder, even though he has so many great places to run. That is, it's a really fun spot. Yeah, it's, it's, 
it's great. That's awesome that he, it's still his favorite and he has a lot more options now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For some encouragement here to every aspiring runner who listens, can you finish by sharing with us when and how you began competitively running a little bit of your story? Yeah, I never ran in high school. And by that, I mean, never, I, I never ran. I played soccer. I didn't run competitively cr- cross country or track. And then I went to, I, I chose my college based on not where I wanted to potentially go play soccer because I played soccer in high school and my senior year, I was on the the better team in the state. And so I had to decide if I wanted to go to a smaller school for soccer or if I wanted to go to a larger school uh, and just try to either walk onto their team or just play their, on their club team. And I got really good advice that basically said, you need to go to a school not for the sport. You need to go to a school that you'll love with or without the sport. And I chose Clemson and I was not on their soccer team, but I walked onto their club soccer team. You just have to sign up and played club soccer my freshman year. And then I remember thinking like, this is awesome. I have so much time and I can do all these fun things. And then I started running around, literally running around Clemson with one of my, my friends. And, and then I, to be honest, it was Greenville track club that really pulled me into running more frequently. And so I remember coming back from Clemson, my freshman year of college, uh, my parents were doing track workouts at Greenville high school. I remember specifically Daryl and Jurgen who kind of facilitated the track workouts at Greenville High School. And so I would drive back, I think they're on Wednesdays, and they had a standard workout that they gave everybody. And I did it. And I just, I did, had no idea what splits I was running. I didn't really care. I probably was wearing soccer shorts and um, who knows what shoes. And I just remember there was girl, Caroline Jennings, who I'm still really good friends with. She was uh, like a legend at Christchurch at that point. Um, And I remember trying to keep up with her for a while. And then she and I started to just really, I started to be able to keep up with her. And um, there was just one, I think it was the summer of my freshman year that my, my dad had made a had told me that I should do the candlelight run, which is in Greenville. And that if I ran faster than 1930, that I should contact the coach at Clemson. And so I ended up running in 1932 and it was just a series of events where I chose not to shut the door on myself and really kind of go back to, to letting the people who I trust and that I surround myself with pour into pour into me and give me advice that I wouldn't have given myself. And so, you know, I ended up contacting the coach and then I had to contact him again. And then he, um, I don't know if it was reluctantly, but he responded and said, you can try out at this time at this place on this day and you have a one mile time trial. 
And so I showed up and looked so out of place. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and then I did the, I did the mile time trial. I think I ran like maybe like a five twenty four or something. It was my first timed race ever. And, and then he let me on the team. And so that that's kind of where it all started. And, and then he ended up leaving my, after that year, he was replaced by, um, the coach that I had for the duration of my time at Clemson, um, Brad Herbster. And he and I really clicked. And I think that I was so coachable because I was kind of a sponge. I didn't know what I was doing and I would just do whatever he said. And he was a fantastic coach. And so he really saw my potential. And then, and then that sort of, that, that's where it all started. Um, was with was with one coach letting me on and then another coach coming in and really and really investing in me as a runner and then I took off from there from there to all conference and all America and most recently the Olympic trials marathon this past weekend in Atlanta Kim Maloney, it was so great to have you on. Really enjoyed your perspective, refreshing and inspiring. So thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on. It was our pleasure. And before we go, last thing, any idea now what's next after you've climbed this mountain? And not a marathon anytime soon. Um, but well I, am looking, <laughs> I am looking to sprinkle in some half marathons and potentially some 10Ks. The 10K is still one of my favorite events. And I feel like I sidetracked to the marathon as a diversion to then come back to, you know, 10K half marathon. So I'm looking to maybe do, I'm looking at grandma's half marathon Very perhaps cool. in, in June and then probably maybe some local races either here in Greenville before, and then maybe, I don't know, maybe even I'll, I'll do cross country in the fall, you know, USATF cross country or something like that, but I'm still enjoying my break. And then, and then I'm, I'll have to get back to actually making decisions soon. Absolutely fun. That's all sounds great. We'll be watching, following you and rooting for you. So Kim, thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for mile 52 of the Seconds Flat Running podcast. We'd love to hear your show ideas or your questions or comments at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to talking to you next time.